You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. All right, today our reading is from Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I want to begin with a quote from a 20th century author named A.W. Tozer. And he begins this quote with this. He says, God and the spiritual are real. Sometimes things get lost because they become cliche. But turn to your neighbor and remind them that God is real. Those joining online, write it in the comment section. God is real, exclamation point, exclamation point. <laughs> God and the spiritual are real. And he says, we can reckon upon them with as much assurance as we can reckon upon the familiar world around us, like trees and blooming flowers and the sounds of hell's angel going down uh, minor right here. Spiritual things are real, or rather, we should say here, inviting our attention and challenging our trust. Our trouble is that we've established, he says, bad thought habits. We habitually think of the visible world as real, and then we doubt the reality of any other. The world of senses intrudes upon our attention day and night with the, through the whole of our lifetime. It's clamorous, insistent, and self-demonstrating. It does not appeal to our faith. It's here assaulting our five senses, demanding to be accepted as real and final. Now at times, it can feel like in this world that there are essentially just two possible ways of viewing life around us. One is through the lens of secularism. The other is through superstition. 
Secularism sees the world strictly through rational thought. It rejects the involvement of faith, belief, and trust, and religion. It's based on empirical, observable evidence, not faith. There is nothing spiritual. There are no miracles. There is no God. Good things happen and bad, thing hap bad things happen, but there's no spiritual significance behind any of it. It's all about the natural, no supernatural. I remember years ago seeing this wall just covered in graffiti, and one statement that popped out really sums up the secularist view. It said, free your minds from the lies that two eyes cannot see. If you can't see it, it's a lie. The other option that's presented to us is superstition. Superstition sees the world strictly through irrational thought. It rejects the involvement of science and data and reason. It's always reaching for supernatural explanations. It's always spiritualizing everything. There is nothing natural. It's always this mysterious message for us to decode. Something bad happens and God must be punishing you. Or the spirits must be angry at you or the universe must be trying to get your attention or something trivial and, you know, potentially good. You get a good parking spot and you're like, oh, I must have done something good. God's blessing me today. You smile, but you do it. <laughs> or, or I just must have done something, something great so the universe is smiling upon me. It's all about the supernatural. Nothing is natural. And so in a, in a really polarizing world, like the world that we live in, Right now, it can feel like we're being pushed into one of, one of these two categories. And if we're to be honest, Christianity feels like a move into the superstitious. Today, if you're just checking things out and faith out and just looking into the things of Jesus, to believe feels like a move into the superstitious. But honestly, I think for the average person, neither of these is a right fit. I don't meet a lot of atheists. I know they're out there. I've talked to a few. But personally, I don't meet a lot of atheists. I meet a ton of people that feel lost in the middle. Where they deep down realize that neither the secularist view nor the superstitious one are comprehensive enough to navigate such a complex world like the world that we live in that is filled with natural wonder, and yet at the same time, spiritually rich. And, and they're not that, that sort of middle trying to navigate, trying to figure it out. And so the Bible presents us with an entirely different way of seeing and experiencing life, and it is a spirituality that is not closed off to reasoning, but at the same time, obviously, it's not closed off to belief. To be a Christian, you don't have to leave your mind at the door. But also to navigate the world wisely, you don't have to leave your soul either. There's a line from the movie, The Greatest Showman. Okay. And it says, dreaming with your eyes wide open. It's a phrase that's really stood out to me. Dreaming with your eyes wide open. I think it's a fitting way of describing what the Bible calls hope. It's not optimism. Like, it's oh, it doesn't matter what happens. It's just going to be great. But it's also not pessimism, where it's like, oh, it just is what it is, man. Just accept it. It's hope. And hope is what brings color and vibrancy to the things that we see and we experience. 
C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the rising sun, not just because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And Christian hope is the same. Christian hope is the light through which we see things in our life differently. Now, it doesn't necessarily explain all of our questions, not yet at least, but it illuminates. And it illuminates especially in dark and trying times like I think the times that we find ourselves in right now. Hope allows us to envision life not just according to what we see in the here and now, but according to what can be. Hope allows us to envision life in light of what will be. And so what the Apostle Paul does here in Romans 4 is he gives us a case study. He's continuing to dive into the life of Abraham. And what we're told is that what God did in Abraham's life, he didn't just do for Abraham. He did it for our sake. We're told here that God, what God did in his life was to stir us so that we would share in his faith. In other words, so that you and I could dare to hope like Abraham. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at this, this hope, this daring hope. How does it work in our lives? The first thing, if you're taking notes, is this. Hope rests on the promises of God. Hope rests on the promises of God. Let me say it differently. Hope is the confident expectation that if God said it, he's going to fulfill it. That's usually where the church amens. Amen, right? If God said it, God will fulfill it. Amen? When? I have no idea. How? I have no clue. But I know God will. The people of God have always been a people of promise. God's promise to redeem creation and to establish his kingdom through the Messiah is like a thread that runs throughout the entire story of God, from the Garden of Eden all the way to the new heavens and the new earth, from Genesis to the book of Revelation. God's promise ties it all together. And as you're reading through the Bible, and as the Bible is unfolding, it becomes clear that God's holy son, Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment of this promise. In fact, Paul would say elsewhere in 2 Corinthians that in Jesus, all of God's promises find their yes and their amen. Jesus is God's amen. And this is important to keep in mind because as we're reading through the Bible, we see God making particular promises to specific people. But as we step back, we see that all of those promises point forward to Jesus. And so the promise that came to Abraham was that through his offspring, all of the nations would be blessed. But notice something here. Paul clarifies that it wasn't based on Abraham's life. It wasn't based on his obedience. It wasn't based on his moral uprightness. In fact, when God calls Abraham out of Ur and gives him the promise, Abraham is a moon-worshiping pagan. This was hundreds of years before the law was even given. This was hundreds of years before there was even a Jewish tradition and Jewish religion to be good at. And so it was a promise that was based completely on God. And that's the point. It was a promise that was resting on God. All that Abraham needed to do was trust and live like it was true. 
If you say it, God, then it will come to pass. I may have to wait. I have no idea how you're going to fulfill it. Promises of God give us patience. We learn patience. We're learning patience every Sunday. Hope says, I may have to wait. I may not, may not know how it's going to come to pass. But if God said it, then listen. Then it's as good as done. Then it's as good as done. And that's really all he could do. Because remember, Abraham and Sarah were barren. And now they were way too old to conceive. It would have to rest completely on God and his hands to fulfill it. So, this promise to Abraham was so compelling and heart-gripping that Abraham redirected his entire life around it. He left his extended family. He left his homeland. He left his religious upbringing. You see, this is what hope does. It makes us willing to pass on what is right in front of us. It, It makes us willing to pass on the familiar in order to pursue what is not yet seen. Hope is the great spiritual marshmallow test, if you're familiar with that. It allows us to forgo what is immediate and hold out for what God says is to come. And I think a lot of us are failing the spiritual marshmallow test. We settle for what is right in front of us because we can't imagine something better coming. If you are not daring to hope and to rest your life on God's promises, then you are going to be settling for less than God's best. But the Bible calls us to dare to hope. So how do we dare to hope? We've got to know God's promises. How are we going to hope if we're not familiar with God's promises? How do we become familiar with God's present promises? We've got to dive into his word. We got to know what God promises to us. And then when we know what God promises to us, we got to cling to those promises. Amen? And this is a crazy thought. We've got to live like they're true. Secondly, hope reasons with the facts. Hope reasons with the facts. Now I'm going to read verses 19 and 20, but from the NIV, because I think it draws out what I'm, I'm trying to get at here. Without weakening in his faith, with, uh, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. So, what were the facts that Abraham had to face? He was old. She was old. They were barren. Okay? So he had to confront the physical impossibility that was right in front of him. The physical impossibility of them ever having children at 100 years old. Hope faces the facts. Hope stares challenge right in the face, and it doesn't deny the data. It grapples with the details. It grapples with the facts. I think that this may be why some of our hope is so weak. is because we have not been bold enough to wrestle with the details in front of us. We want to go, no, 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 I don't want to hear it. Don't, don't, no, 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 I'm just happy over here believing better. Hope courageously reasons, it wrestles, and it does the very 
difficult work of considering. And yet, it concludes with certainty that God's promises and God's power will always surpass human impossibility. Always. It says in verse 18, in hope he believed against hope. So from a human perspective, there was absolutely no hope. It, it's as if he looked at his body and said, it ain't happening. There is no hope to be found here. And I don't know about you right now, but a lot of life feels like this sort of assessment. Look around at your life, look around at 2021. It feels like Abraham looking down and considering his frail body. We are surrounded by hopeless situations. But Abraham didn't ignore the evidence of brokenness. He didn't pretend like that wasn't true. He reasoned with the facts, and, that, and then he hoped against hope. Now, that's not a particularly comfortable place to be, is it? But that's where the Christian exists. You've got to acknowledge that the impossibilities are real. And yet, so is God. And that's the tension that you have to learn to live within. The impossibilities are so real, and yet so is God. Say, for instance, your body is not working like it should. It begins to, to become weak, and you're realizing that there's something wrong. You go to the doctor, and they give you the, the, the painful diagnosis that you've got cancer and it's metastasized. They show you uh, the red blood cell counts. They show you the MRI imaging of the mass and how it's begun to spread. You go and you get a second opinion. That doctor tells you the same exact thing. At that moment, the facts are real. Now, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you this right now, but I've met too many Christians that would say, I don't believe in being sick. I rebuke sickness. I deny sickness. As if faith means that you have to treat sickness as if it's not real. That's superstition. No wonder why people are rejecting your faith. Or even worse, you're getting sick because you didn't have enough faith. So let me make this painfully clear. No, that's not how it works. That isn't faith. That isn't hope. Hope says this. Hope says God has promised my healing and my wholeness. He is my healer. That may mean that God miraculously heals my body. That may mean that God uses doctors to heal my body. Or that may mean God allows the cancer to consume me and I die. In which case, I am with God in eternity, totally whole and totally healed. Either way, the facts are the facts. And God's promise is still God's promise. Amen? Thirdly, hope redefines your life. Hope redefines your life. In verse 17, Paul quotes the book of Genesis. And it's where God tells Abraham, quote, look at me in verse 17. I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. 
The word for that is ex nihilo, out of nothing. And so the reason I say that hope redefines your life or it redefines your reality is that God tells, now listen to this, God tells Abraham, you are the father of many nations. Here's the crazy part. This is years before he and Sarah ever conceived. Don't miss this. God is saying, you are the father of many nations, and he has no children. Can we admit that that's nuts? That's not how things work. God changed Abraham's identity before he changed Abraham's circumstances. Abraham was first named the father of many nations, and then he became the father of many nations as he dared to trust that God could do what only God could do. And this is how God works. Think about in the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the world out of chaotic nothingness. God spoke light and life into the dark, barren void. He said, let there be life and let there be light. And there was life and there was light. God spoke into this barren couple and he said, you are the parents of many nations, and they eventually became what God had declared. And this is what God does in our lives. This isn't just theoretical. This is how God changes us. God speaks into the lifeless parts of us, into the void and barren portions of our lives, and he says, rise, come to life. God speaks over us through his word, and he says, you are holy, you are beloved, you are righteous. And then we must live in a way as if that's true. We, may, we must allow God's word and God's declaration over us to define our reality. I don't know about you, but I don't feel very holy. I don't feel very beloved. I don't feel very righteous. But God's word is far more trustworthy than my up and down feelings. God's promise to renew our lives by his Holy Spirit and to make us into the image of Jesus Christ, that is what changes us. We are first declared righteous when we believe in Jesus Christ, and then we are becoming what is already true of us through the process of following Jesus and continuing to love and trust him. He declares it, and then it comes about in our lives. And so in those moments of self-loathing, in those moments of regret, in those moments of doubt, in those moments of self-hatred. When you and I are so aware of our sin and our brokenness, and we feel utterly defined by the very worst portions of us, we simply look to the cross. We simply look to the empty tomb where Paul tells us in verse 25, Jesus said he was delivered up I'm sorry, speaking of Jesus, he was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. I don't feel holy. I don't feel forgiven. I don't feel beloved. I don't feel righteous. But I look to the cross and I'm reminded that that word over me is the final word over my life. The blood of Jesus Christ speaks a better word, amen? Tim Keller said, believing in God is not simply thinking about God, but trusting his word. 
Indeed, it is taking God at his word even when there's nothing else to go on. When feelings and popular opinion and common sense seem to contradict his promise, it is to look at what God has said and let that define reality for you. Friend, you have to allow God's word to shape who you are, and you have to let God's word determine how you live. You have to allow God's promises to be the end-all, be-all, final authority in your life. Your fears, your personal ambitions, your bodily urges, your political leaning, the public opinion, the cultural trends, the majority vote, those are not ultimate truth. Your truth is an ultimate truth. Only what God has promised will come to fulfillment. And at the end of the day, it's all that we can bank our life on. God said it, and I believe it. Amen? Finally, hope refuses to give despair the last word. Hope refuses to give despair the last word. Hope is believing that the worst thing is never the final thing. It can be the worst thing, but it's not the final thing. Back in February here in Stockton, I don't know if you read about this, uh, in a canal off Highway 99, uh, morning commuters were absolutely shocked and mortified as they discovered countless bodies floating in the water. And it was this sickening scene scene where there were severed limbs and uncovered bodies just floating on the surface. It was like the scene out of a movie, and it was immediately apparent that there had been some sort of massacre. You read about this? The first responders were called in, and they walked down that levee bank, and they were prepared to discover the unimaginable. I mean, something that no person is ever prepared to discover. But upon closer investigation, the lifeless bodies turned out to be what? Mannequins. You didn't read about this? Guys, read your news. I saw the pictures. It was in the record. I saw the pictures, and I was reading through this article. I was like, how did I miss this? Mannequins. <laughs> it, uh, kids, it's the, 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 like the plastic people at the clothing store. It wasn't a massacre. Someone had emptied out their storage container and just dumped it in the canal. As I read this news article, a lot of things went through my mind, but one of them was this. I was reminded about how our eyes can deceive us. Our eyes can deceive us. We think that we have a handle on life and what's going on around us, that we, we, what we see and what we assume about life is all there is, that this is the way things are. And what ends up happening is just naturally these people, we imagine the worst case scenario. We imagine it's just the worst case. But hope allows us to see that what we immediately assumed about life and what we assumed about our impossible circumstances in life is not final. It appears so tragic. It appears so over. But upon further investigation, the Christian is surprised by hope. And Paul ends this portion of scripture by giving us 
a hint at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where ultimately our hope is found. And it's the event that the Lenten season that we're in right now is anticipating. During these 40 or so days, we are like the women that are journeying toward the tomb before the light had come up while it was still dark out. They didn't know what they were going to find. They didn't know what sort of lifeless situation that they would uncover. They didn't know what the, the new day would bring, and we don't either. We don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We don't know what 2021 is going to bring. And they had just witnessed the death of their Savior. They had seen with their own eyes their Jesus Christ crucified. He was dead. It was a fact. And yet he had promised that he would rise on the third day. There's the tension. There's the tension. They saw with their own eyes, Jesus is dead. And yet he promised to rise. There was a lot of uncertainty. There was despair. There was disappointment. And yet they hoped against hope. And they did what you and I have to do in this season. Turning off our phones. <laughs> That's the point of the sermon. Turn your phone off. Yeah, that was such a like dramatic moment too. I had you guys. I had you in my palm of my hands. <laughs> they did what you and I have to do. Here it is. They kept showing up. They kept showing up. They had no idea what to expect, but they stayed expectant. And that's how we approach tomorrow as well. They refused to allow despair to get the last word. That, that, that's what hope does for us as well, as we embrace and believe the one that, that raised Jesus to new life when all bets were off. And now because of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb, we can stare our hopeless situations square in the face and not be ruined by them. Because we know that God brings about life in barren situations. He brings about life in barren wombs. He brings about life in barren tombs. And he will bring about life in your barren circumstance as well. God's promise to renew the world reminds us that it's not over until God says it's over. Write that down. Remember it. It's not over until God says it's over. And when Christ returns to renew all things and to make everything right again, there will be no mistaking it. And so until then, we hope how we keep showing up. We keep leaning into the promises. We keep living as if what God has said is true. And we keep inviting others to share in Abraham's faith as well. What do we do? We call others to dare to hope as well. We're honest with our friends. We're honest with our coworkers. We're honest with our family members. I don't know what tomorrow will bring, but my future is bright because of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For